You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 95 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I'm a little bit riled up today, Val. Why to is that? Honest with you. I don't know. I'm just having one of those days. Was it something I'm... I said? Well, <laughs> probably. Um, it was probably in oldie English with a Latin accent. No, I... <laughs> No, not really. No, I'm working. Um, I, I'm just. I'm working on a whole range of different things at the moment, and I'm just. I'm just finding I don't have enough time. I've got myself into mm. that mess yes. where I've said yes, I can do that to way too many things, and here I am. Yeah. Um. See, it happens to everyone. Very yeah. hard to say no. Yeah. Very hard. So now to say I will no. churn and churn and churn like a duck under the water while staying <laughs> calm on top, and I will get it done, Valerie, because that's what I do. Like a duck. I now have an image. Of you. I know. <laughs> you know how ducks are like they're smoothly sailing across the water, and underneath their little legs are going around, around, yes. around, around. Yeah, that's me. All right, God. Okay. <laughs> okay. So just imagine me now swimming across the pond. But you're, you've said yes or you haven't said no to many writing projects. Am, am That's I correct, yes. Right? Yes. That's correct. Many writing projects. So all good. I just, you know, I just have to um, uh, be sensible and get them done. It's just, it's just that post, <laughs> post-school holiday thing. I was like, yeah, sure, I could do that. I've got so much time now. Yeah, yeah. Um, without sort of remembering all the other things I was already doing. But anyway, it's good. It's a good problem to have as a freelance writer. So, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm just a little bit duckish. (laughs) (laughs) It is a good problem to have. Well, while you've been duckish, I think I've been deluded-ish. Oh, oh. Yeah. So, well, I started a big writing project last week and I, for some reason I got it into my head that I was going to try and you know, um, accomplish a lot in a very short space of time. So I divided it up into um, chunks and I thought, I know this is going to be a stretch, but I'm going to pretend I'm Superwoman and I'm going to see if I can do these major, major, major chunks in one day. So in day one, I had this major chunk. And the thing is, I went hell for leather and I, it was a bit crazy. You should have seen me, like my team probably thought I was, had gone nuts because I did actually power through that first day. And there were a lot of fist pumps. There were a lot of, you know, (laughs) high fives to myself. And and I probably, (laughs) no doubt people could hear you typing three suburbs away. You would have been bashing on your keyboard. Yeah. (laughs) Could okay. they could to the point where I think I was getting RSI in my um arm in my in, in my wrist and I was so excited that I actually achieved what I thought was going to be near impossible on that first day and um, the two ensuing days I was like oh my god I've got no more energy mm. so I'm now behind oh. and I and I kind of deluded myself into thinking it was such a big sprint I did so much writing. I now deserve to binge watch a new television series. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Valerie. Really? I know. So I kind of got it a little bit wrong, I think. I think I'm a bit too extreme. I understand. My friend Louisa always says to me, you know, everything in moderation and I can't seem to cope with that concept. But we'll see. We'll see how this week pans out, whether okay. I go for the um, big swings and on both ends of the spectrum or not. So in summary, both of us, (laughs) both of us have attempted, you are also being a duck because both of us have have attempted to do way too much all at once and yeah. Yes, I was being a duck, but I did manage to binge watch entire seasons as well. So Yeah, I didn't do that. Anyway, okay. So what what have you got for us? Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing and blogging. Now, I understand you actually have a link for us about the number one problem with backstory. Is that correct? 
I do. Now, this was interesting. Now, they got, I have to admit, they got me in with the headline of this because I mm. got, I, I thought, all right, I'm going to click on this because I, my assumption was that the number one problem with backstory mm. is that people tend to dump it into the first chapter in a massive info dump and it's not, yes. you know, that's, it's a very dull way to start a book. I, and so I was thinking, yeah, 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 la-da-da-da-da, had a read. Actually, no, this is not <laughs> it. And I found that really interesting. So mm. according to this this uh, particular blog post that I came across, which was on helping writers become authors.com, mm-hmm. The number one problem with backstory is not where to put it, mm-hmm. which is a big question that I often ask myself with backstory, and yes. it was not how much or anything like that. The question you have to ask yourself is what, why, why is this your character's backstory and mm-hmm. what is the point of this backstory in the context of the overall novel, mm-hmm. which is, sounds like it's it's actually a, a kind of a light bulb thing for a lot of people. So things happen, and you've you know you've got your you've got your backstory, and your 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 character's got a limp, and he's blind in one eye, and he's you know whatever, and he's got this secret ability to do magic or whatever. Mm. Um, why? What's the point yes. of that? How is that going to come out in the story? Is that limp going to be useful at some point? You know, is the is the fact that he's blind in one eye going to have some telling problem on the story later on? Like the backstory of the of the character needs to be relevant to the story. Which yes. is okay. It's pretty um, you know, if you're gonna give your protagonist a tragic backstory then make sure that that tragic backstory has some repercussions and context within the actual story that you're trying to tell now. Mm. So it's not just window dressing. It's not just, isn't it sad, he's had a terrible life, but now look how amazing his life is. He's all happy. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. Anyway, I thought that was a really interesting link and it just goes to show you that sometimes the clickbait is worth clicking. <laughs> yes. Now, do you think that all, when, in terms of backstory that is – there's backstory that's told within the novel or the book mm-hmm. or the story or whatever, but then there's backstory that isn't told that is mm-hmm. part of your understanding of the character, that's part of your understanding of why that character developed in the way that – they did that's they're two quite different things um do you think that it's still important for the backstory which isn't explicit in the book to you know to to ask the why and all of that I think so I think it's you know if your if your character doesn't like bananas Mm. (laughs) like like you like somebody else I could mention yes you you know kind of heaves at the idea of banoffee pie um (laughs) You know, is is that going to have some? Does it matter? You know, mm. is it going to come out in some kind of relevant way at some point? Like, I guess the point is that there's things about your the things about your character that they have to matter. There's got to be a point to most of what goes on. So the way I write, with the fact that I don't actually do the plotting and planning so much, I'm not someone who asks my character twenty questions and does all those things. Mm. Tends to come out in the writing. So what I find is that I will have stuff in the backstory as I'm writing along that I then remove. Um, but I'll only remove it from the actual story if it's shown somewhere mm. and it actually makes sense in the story. Yes. Um, so the whole banana thing, you know, it, it will be shown somewhere and there has to be a point to it. Um, so, yeah, so I don't tend to put in a lot of extraneous detail and I don't I don't think the reader needs to know it. And, I, yeah, does it matter to me? I don't know. Like that's an interesting thing because I tend to focus on the story and writing the story and the things that come up as I write the story. Mm. So it be interesting. Like if you talk to someone like Kate Forsyth about this question, it would probably be quite a different answer because yes. she does do so much character development yeah. um, as she, you know, writes her novels and perhaps we need to get someone like her in again to have mm. that conversation because um, I think it's, you know, I, I know there are a lot of, of a lot of people that say you've got to know your writer, you've got to know your character inside out before you even begin. You mm. need to know what they had for breakfast when they were five. You mm. need to know all this stuff. I don't think that that stuff is relevant unless it's relevant to the story. Yes. So, you know. And every author does it differently. Differently. That's so exactly So it really right. depends. There's no right way or wrong way. No. I remember once, one thing that you may not know about me, Alison, and I haven't really told many people, um, is that, is that uh, I used to do the occasional acting gig. Oh. And uh, I was in a, not a Qantas ad, but a Qantas training video. And um, yeah, so it was B grade stuff. <laughs> and <are> over here. <laughs> and I was supposed to be a business class passenger and, uh, you know, asleep in one of these 
you know, nice business class bed thing. Asleep, so you didn't even have to act. You didn't even have to act. This is the thing. So I sit, but I was sitting next to another passenger, and he was a you know meant to be a distinguished businessman, and I was asleep, and he was meant to be sitting up and talking to the hostie, and he turned to me, goes, "What's our backstory?" I'm just like, just let me sleep in this business class bed, please. You work out whatever you want, you know. So it really, you know, I guess it depends, you know. Some people need it and some people just really don't. That's so true. (laughs) Anyway, let us move on to, I had a, this is thanks to Dean who sent sent this into us from Mental Floss and it's a link called 42 Old English Insults. <laughs> and I love it I because... I see you and Dean both enjoying this post very much. I'm going to start using these. Um, uh, and it starts off saying, besides being the greatest writer in the history of the English language, William Shakespeare was the master of the pithy put-down. So it has a lot of these put-downs, such as um, a uh, cream-faced loon, um, uh, a bed swerver. Do you know what a bed swerver is? Sounds awkward. No. Yes, an adulterer. Oh, that makes sense. A swerver, mm. swerving from one to the other. Yes, that makes that's sense. Right. A, a driggle draggle. A driggle draggle. Yes. Oh, an untidy woman. That's me. <laughs> I'm a driggle draggle. <laughs> I love the next one, which is a fop doodle. You're a fop doodle, which means <laughs> an insignificant or foolish man. Oh, that's fantastic. We should bring some of these back, don't you think? I know. We should try, yes. Um, there's also fusty lugs, which is a, a term for a woman of gross or corpulent habit. <laughs> and it's 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 derived from fusty in the sense that something's gone off or gone stale. So, yes, there's there's a whole heap, but they're, they're worth looking at. Um, like a ragger brash is a disorganised or grubby person. Oh. Yes. Oh, and I love this one. A smell feast. You're a smell feast, you could say to somebody who turns up uninvited at a meal or party and expects to be fed. No. Mm. But there are 42 to have a look at. We'll put them in the show notes if you just want a bit of a giggle. Fantastic. Well, let's move on to something that um, is, it's been around for a while, but I think it's a, it's a good one. And it's called 13... Tip, writing tips from Chuck Palahniuk. I can't pronounce his name. Me either. You know, I can but never pronounce clever. his name. Yes, he he's writes very, a lot for Writer's Digest, doesn't he? Very clever. This was on Lit Reactor. Yeah. And he's got uh, um, 13 different writing tips. And they're, you know, they're, they're well thought out. And some of them are just sort of obvious, but they are um, – uh, but they're worth talking about. And one of them, which I really like, is – your audience is smarter than you imagine because sometimes we feel that we need to belabor a point or we need to explain something or explain it, maybe not explain it as in over explain it, but explain it in a clever way. Well, sometimes maybe it doesn't need explaining at all, mm. you know? Um, so yeah, your audience is smarter than you think. I think it's, 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 it's a good one to remember because sometimes it's just uh, plot points and backstories and and that sort of thing are there's it's too much work goes it's just too try hard mm. have you seen fight club did I you have. see the movie have I you read did. the book i have not yeah i've read the book it's quite interesting he he's a he's a very um it's it's a it's very evocative, you know, like the whole mm. the language. The you feel like it, you know, even if you've never seen the movie, you feel like you're there, like you feel like you're amongst it, mm. getting amongst it, talking about. I'm talking about Fight Club, and I know you're not supposed to, but even so, <laughs> but no, I think that these um, these uh, these points are great. I personally like number eleven. Mm. Get author book jacket photos taken now while you're young. <laughs> And get the negatives and copyright on those photos. I think that's quite clever. <laughs> that's awesome. But you that's do awesome. see those ones. You don't. don't you? I, th- I was looking at my photos the other day, thinking mm, it might be time to up, you know, date them because they're probably a few years old now. And you don't <laughs> want to be that author, do you? Who's still got the twenty-eight-year-old yeah, photo yeah. and they're actually seventy-six. No. <laughs> I like number ten. This, I think, this is a really, really important one. Write the book you want to read. I oh, think that's a really yeah. good one, yeah. But you, we, we'll put the link in the show notes so you can have a look at uh, Chuck's tips. Mm. Let's move on to uh, another link which you've got for us about mm. author websites. Is that right? 
Well, yes, and I think that this is quite an interesting one. It's a very back-to-basics post, and it's called 10 Questions to Ask Yourself Before Launching Your Author Website. Because I think it's a given that if you want to... you know, that pretty you pretty much need a website as an author these days. Like it's going to be your home on the internet and the internet is a very, very big place. It yeah. is the place to launch. It is the platform for your platform, so to speak, yeah. the foundations for your platform. Um, the beautiful thing about an author website is that you um, it can evolve and change as you evolve and change. Mine's mm. been um, updated and changed over the years many times. Um, but I think that this, there's a very good list of questions here to ask yourself before you launch your first author website. Mm. First question is, you know, do you really need one? Mm. Um, and I think it's, you know, even if you haven't uh, written your book, finished your book, got your book published, whatever, I think it's important that you start to establish your presence on the internet as a writer mm. Um as early as possible. Um, mm. We've talked about this before. Um, the other questions are things like, you know, what do you want people to take away from your website? Like who who is going to come to your website? What yes. do you want them to, to, what impression are you trying to give them? What do you want them to kind of know about you? What do you want your website to look like? Like yes. how do I want my website to appear? And I think that one of the best and easiest ways to work that out is to have a look at a lot of author websites, yep. choose three that appeal to you like that and and have a look at what the similarities between those three things are very um now this was quite an interesting one like when do i want to schedule my website launch and i think a lot of people think i've got to wait till my book's published and that is not the case as soon as possible is the correct answer there um but then there's the question of you know do you want to blog um blogging is a commitment i would always say yes just simply for the fact that it gives you if nothing else it gives your website fresh content all the time which is very google likes fresh content so it will help with your search engine optimization and and all those things and and i know you're thinking i'm just writing great books you know i don't need to think about seo well in an ideal world Yes, that would be true. In the real world, you have to consider all possibilities. So anyway, there's some great questions on there to ask yourself, you know, mm-hmm. from, you know, where do I start? How much money do I want to spend? Um, and it's it's worth, if you're thinking about an author website, having a look at 10 questions like this. Um, mm-hmm. I've got a lot of great uh, points and questions to ask yourself as well uh, in the Build Your Author Platform course that we've done. Yes. Um, just things that you need to think about and, you know, try to work out, you know, who you are as an author who, what impression you want to give, who you want to visit your website and all of those different things. So um, definitely worth having a look if you're in this, you know, beginning stages of putting a website together. And one of the questions that I think is really important, I mean, they're all important, but one that I think is worth mentioning and singling out is how do I want visitors to contact me? Because mm. if you've got a fan or somebody who has read your book and they want to, they, they go to your website, chances are they want to tell you how much they love the book. So mm. is there a way for them to to email you or reach out to you on social media or whatever mm. um, and, and, and just tell you, it, it just makes them feel good that they've reached out for you that it probably will make them feel even better if you respond to them but I think that one of the things that confounds me is when some authors say oh I don't want to put my email address online Mm. or I don't want you know to to display it or whatever because I don't want to get a whole heap of spam or a lot of um, people people knowing my personal email address and that's fair enough but seriously email addresses are free just get Mm. another one that's purely for this reason Mm. they're free it Mm. just drives me Crazy. You can get a get a Gmail account that's specific to your website, or you can also um, use a, a plugin on your site and have a contact form, yes. so that your actual email address is never shown. That's um, right. It goes to your email address, but they, they it goes through a contact form, and so um, you know it's a lot harder for spammers to actually you know get hold of you that way. So I mean, I do understand the spam thing, but I also think you know try not to make it difficult for people to find you if they want to. Oh yes, absolutely. And mm. um, as you mentioned, your course, build your author platform platform does cover a lot of the stuff, some of the stuff that we've mentioned here on how to get your author website up and running, the sorts of things that you need to feature on your author website, the the things that you must feature on your author website. And uh, this is, it officially launches next week, which is the 15th of February. Uh, But if people sign up and download a course outline this week, they'll be able to get it at a special never-to-be-repeated price. So if you want to have a look at that, it's 
writerscentre.com.au slash platform and you'll be taken straight to the page where you can download the course outline and get the offer. So that ties in to... That ties in neatly to our yes. next discussion point um, because one of the things that I think uh, people find difficult when they're actually putting an author website together, like I say, oh, you should just find some great you know, examples and choose mm. one that you like and blah, blah, blah. Well, in the course, I do actually point you in the direction of websites that you know have a lot of food for thought, a lot of inspiration, a lot of things to think about. Yes. But you can also look at fantastic uh, posts such as the rightlife.com, which is a website for writers, mm. has um, has put together its annual list, and we do love an annual list, mm-hmm. of the best websites for writers, 100 best websites for writers. Mm. Now, a lot of these are craft-based, how to be a freelance blogger, be, you know, beyond your blog, and all of these things can be useful if you're putting together a blog to go with your author website. Mm. But there are author, also straightforward author websites on there that are doing brilliantly well. Like Joanna Penn's website, mm-hmm. The Creative Pen, is just an absolute bonanza of not only information about writing and self-publishing and all those things, um, but she runs two. One is a one is JF Pen, which is her uh, mystery, thriller, writer, author website, mm-hmm. and then she has The Creative Pen, which is her, you know, empire for <laughs> self-publishers, um, for, you know, people who want to indie publish their work. But there's a lot, like so many great websites on here if you're looking for information about, you know, different uh, different aspects of writing and blogging, blogging, some author websites, a whole range of different things. So I would heartily recommend that you have a look at that list we'll and just have a twirl through. We'll put the link in the show notes. It's at therightlife.com, 100 best website for writers 2016 so um definitely worth having a look awesome now we're in the sp- in the spirit of giving we have mm. a giveaway this week and our giveaway this week is for the waiting room by leah kaminsky and we have a copy of this book to give away and um all you need to do to to win is to go to writerscenter.com au slash win and uh, you'll find out more and uh, I'll just read you a little bit from it it takes place in Israel in 2001 following Dina a family doctor living against the backdrop of high terror alerts occupational hazards and the ghosts of a family she left behind in Australia so it's written by Leah Kaminsky who is herself a doctor and um, it's an engrossing read according to the reviewer of this uh, of, of this book um, um, so yeah, writercenter.com.au slash win. And if you're listening to this podcast in the future, don't worry. If you still go to that URL, you'll find a new book that you can win. This podcast was brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to transform your writing, our course, Two Hours to Scrivener Power, will show you how to get up and running on the world's most powerful writing software program, Scrivener. Presented by Scrivener super user Natasha Lester, you'll learn the basics to getting started, as well as some clever tips and tricks to make navigating and optimising the program a breeze. If you've been waiting for the right opportunity to learn Scrivener, this is a step-by-step guide that will help you get there. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. To find out more, visit writerscentercomau slash power. All right, let us move on to our Writer in Residence this week, Al. Mm. Who have you got? Come Who on, Val. Share the information. Who have I got? I spoke to Tim Baker and I thought that this was a really interesting um, journey as an author. He, Tim Baker, he, oh, he lived in various places around the world, Rome, Madrid, New York, LA, uh, before moving to Paris. He's Australian because he's from Sydney. Uh, mm-hmm. But then he moved to Paris and started um, running, working for the consulate, as in the Australian consulate or the Australian embassy and became involved in, you know, murders and kidnaps and terrorism and disappearances, as you do. 
But then he he always had this idea bubbling in his brain about a particular story that he wanted to write and he decided, you know what, it's now or never and then moved, decided, okay, I'm going to give this writing thing a go and uh, he moved to the south of France with his wife and, and family and where it was lower cost of living so that he could focus on writing and the result is his new book, Fever City, which is about uh, an LA private investigator who's hired to find the kidnapped son of America's richest and most hated man. And so we decided to interview Tim as part of his blog tour. And we thought that was pretty interesting because he's doing something innovative in promoting his his debut novel with this blog tour. So um, it's very, very interesting conversation. Let's have a listen to Tim. Thanks for joining us today, Tim. Thanks for having me, Valerie. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, very excited about your debut novel, Fever City. For those readers who haven't had a chance to grab it yet because it's only just out, can you tell us what it's about? Of course. There's three central mysteries at the heart of this thriller. The first one is set in the 1960s and involves the kidnapping of the only child of the richest and most hated man in the United States. (laughs) The second strand, the second mystery, involves a plot to assassinate President Kennedy. And the third mystery is in the present day, and I think it was very important to have a contemporary component for the book. And this is a mystery that's sort of more along the lines of a classic domestic noir. It's a son who's investigating the actions of his father half a century ago, and trying to figure out if he might have been involved in the assassination of JFK. Wow. <laughs> so there are many strands to this story, to this to this novel. How in the world did the idea or rather the ideas for this book form? I mean, was there a light bulb moment? Did did it was it something that was percolating for a period of time? Tell us. There were both of those, Valerie. Uh, the story began 20 years ago, around, or even more, and it was a, a classic kidnapping story, which was a component of a larger mystery uh, concerning the activities of the federal government of the United States in the early 1950s. But as I started writing this novel, I realized that the kidnapping component was, for me, the main story. So I worked on it for a while, but I felt it was lacking something. I put it down. And then I won a prize uh, that was given to me by the Producers Guild of America for a screenplay that I wrote in 2010. And I was invited to Los Angeles to accept the the award. When I was in L.A., I was really hit by the city. I never expected to like the city at all. But in fact, I found that I loved it. There were memories for me, of course, I'm a Sydney cider. So there's a lot of similarities with Sydney. I also spent a lot of time in Mexico City and the the Spanish component of L.A. uh, was present as well. But there was something else as well. It was the proximity of nature, the mountains, the ocean, the way the light was in the afternoon, the shadows. And I felt this is noir capital of the world. (sighs) I suddenly understood why my childhood had been spent reading classic noir novels by people like uh, Raymond Chandler and James Elroy set in L.A., And I had, that was my first light bulb moment. I changed the kidnapping to Los Angeles. Right. Immediately as I, that I did that, I felt that the story had an extra layer of nuance that it didn't have before. But there was still something that was missing. I didn't know what it was. I worked on the book for about another year. I put it down. And then one morning, uh, it was January 2011, I woke up at four o'clock in the morning with a voice in my head. I sprang out of bed, went to my computer, opened it, started typing. It was exactly as though someone were dictating uh, a story to me. I didn't even really know what I was typing. I just followed the voice. It took about four hours. Then I went out, walked the dog, cleared my head, came back and looked at what I had written. And I realized that I had solved the key element that was missing for the kidnapping story, which was the introduction of a secondary plot. And the plot happened to coincide with the assassination or the attempt to assassinate JFK. Once I had that component, I was off and running. So I started that day, 2011. I finished the novel in 2014. So it was another three years of of heavy writing. 
Uh, and then it went out for submission. Uh, it got an agent. My agent worked with me. We reduced the, the text by about 20%. And then it went out to auction, and it was uh, preempted by favor and favor uh, less than three days later. Wow. So that second strand or that moment where you jumped out of bed at 4am, that had been percolating for years and years and years. Yes. I knew that I always wanted to write about the JFK assassination for two reasons. The first reason was a very personal one. It's the earliest memory that I have in my life. I remember the event very clearly and it's unlike, say, a birthday or Christmas, it's an event where you can specifically say that was 1963. It was yes. the f- so in a way, it was the beginning of the personal narrative of my life, of my memories. It's that my memories went earlier than that, but I, I could never tell you exactly what was happening, what day it was, what the event was. They were just sort of impressions. Yes. That day was the beginning of the history of, of my, my memories. And I remember very well the how upset my parents and my grandparents were. I didn't know what had happened, but I knew it was a momentous event. Yeah. So, and then just afterwards, a couple of family traumas occurred. So if you like, it was the beginning of um, a lot of emotion in my life. And the second reason why I wanted to write about it was around 20 years ago, again, I happened to stumble across a sound recording of the assassination of Lee Harvey Oswald by Jack Ruby. And it was such a vivid picture. It was amazing, especially you could hear the scuffles around just after uh, Ruby shot Oswald. You could hear the scuffles of the police. But one thing that struck me was I could hear car horns. First, a first car horn sounded when Oswald came out, and the second car horn sounded just before he was shot. And I asked myself, could that have been a signal? Mm. And that led me to explore the mad and crazy world of JFA, uh, JFK conspiracy. Mm. So uh, ever since uh, then, I, I have been wanting to write about it, but I just didn't have a story to put uh, my ideas on until that dream. Wow. So it's, uh, it's your debut novel, and can you just give us a really brief potted history of you know, your life really up until this point. What were you doing prior to writing this novel? And you, you, you mentioned that you grew up in Sydney. What kind of happened in between then and now? Okay, right. Well, uh, I, st- I was very sick as a child. I was ha- spent a lot of time in hospitals and emergency rooms. And back then there was nothing to do. There were, you know, there was TV was very basic. There was no computers, no Facebook any, nothing like that. So I just thought a lot. And when I was well enough, I, I read. And so ever since my early childhood, I've been fascinated by books and by stories. I started writing seriously in my late teens. And in my early 20s, I, I, I started putting stories together with the eye of getting a collection out. Mm. And when I was uh, 29, I sent a collection of stories out to three publishers and one of them, William Collins, was just launching uh, an Australian imprint called Imprint. Mm-hmm. And they picked up the book in 11 days. So I got a phone call. I went into the, the publisher's office. I, I read the reader's report. I read the contract. I signed. And I thought, that was easy. <laughs> so then I started writing a second uh, collection of short stories. And all of a sudden, I realized that the stories I was writing would were not classic short stories, there was much more to them, they were novels. And that's when I started turning towards the longer form of the novel. Mm. And I started writing one novel, and then I would turn the second story in my collection, my second collection, and I started turning that into a novel. And before you know it, I had nine different novels going uh, at the same time. Oh, my goodness. So that continued for 15 years. Wow. During that time, my wife... uh, Got a, she became a stagiaire, which is like a, a trainee or an intern at a, a famous cooking school in Paris. So we moved to Paris. And uh, then she fell pregnant. And I started to panic because I was getting by as a writer, writing journalism and doing PR work and also writing screenplays. But I felt with a child on the way in Paris, uh, an expensive city, I really would like something more secure. So I applied for a job at the Australian Embassy. I got the job. At first it was part-time. It was working in the consular section of the Australian Embassy. But I must have been good at it because I kept on getting promoted. And after a couple of years, I was running the consular section as the consular manager. Mm. And I was uh, manager for five years. 
And that was um, an amazing experience. It was wonderful to leave your home in Paris, walk across a park and go to work in Australia every day. Yes. Um, but also it's very important for, from the point of view of my work because it exposed me to real scenarios and to police procedures. Mm. And I got an idea of the way police and judicial authorities in France, but also in other countries, because we had oversight in North Africa as well, mm. how they worked, how they conducted themselves when they were looking into, say, a murder or a suicide or a kidnapping or a child abduction. And I became familiar with the kind of questions that were being asked and the kind of responses that the police would get. And that informed this this book, Fever City, I think. That gives it a, an authenticity that it wouldn't have had if I had never worked in the Australian Embassy in, in Paris. And then uh, six years ago, uh, I realized my son was getting older, I was getting older, my duties at the Australian Embassy were growing every day. And I realized it was now or never. I had to make a choice between continuing working at the Embassy, doing work that I loved, or being a writer. And so I discussed it with my wife and we decided to do an all-in bet. We sold up in Paris and we took all the money we had and we moved to a little village in the south of France that we had spent some time in in the summer, which we loved. Mm. And I just decided I would risk everything to uh, live my dream of being a full-time writer. Wow. So that is a big risk. Were there any points during that time that you were thinking, what have I done? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's, an interest, it's interesting, Valerie, because yes and no. Ever since we moved down here, my wife Julie and I have found it's the happiest moment in our lives. It's a very small town, and it's the first time in my life that I've lived in a, a tiny village. Mm-hmm. And we thought it would be very difficult for us to live here. We thought that we would be treated as outsiders. Exactly the opposite happened. We were welcomed with open arms by the local community. So on a personal level it, and on a level of friendship, it's been wonderful. Mm-hmm. And this, this place is really beautiful. Uh, we live right next to the sea. I go swimming six months of the year in the sea. Mm. So from that point of view, from a happiness point of view, from a personal point of view, it's been fantastic. From a financial point of view, it's had moments of <laughs> great darkness and despair. You know, there are times where we couldn't answer the knock at the door or the telephone kind of thing. Mm. But luckily, we've been through that. Uh, as well as selling my novel to uh, Favor and Favor, I also sold a screenplay to some Chinese producers. And those two events were, were life changes for us mm. and, and gave us a kind of security that you really need, especially with a son who's still at school. Yes. What kept you going during the dark moments? Well, I think it was the the support of the, the the people that we've met down here and my love for the work. Mm. Um, I think that's the, the most important thing. You have to hold on to the things that really count in your life. And the other thing it's so hard to do when people say, oh, you, you have to live life one day at a time. That's what kept us going. If you focus on the now and you don't focus on the bills that have to be paid at the end of the month, you can get through these dark moments. But it is difficult. It's a lot uh, harder than it seems to live every day, to live in the now. That's what we attempted to do, and that's what got us through it. So when you were writing the the bulk of the novel between 2011 to 2014, yeah. I think you mentioned, yes. was that there in the south of France? In your yes, village? it was. So it when, was. when you were doing that, were you writing full time and on your novel? And if so, did you have a target, like a, either a word count target or a time frame target or or something like that? Yes. I, I don't work on a word count target. I know a lot of people do and I can see the advantages to it. But for me, the most important thing to do is to get into a rhythm where you're away, where you're writing. And so what would happen is I would arrive at a point where I started to write and then I just wouldn't stop. Mm. And it literally would be morning, noon and night. I just keep on writing, keep on writing all the way through to a draft. Mm. And the next day I would pick up the, the writing from maybe a chapter before, a few pages before. I'd read through that chapter do some editing if I thought it needed it, and then I would get on and keep on writing. And then after a draft was finished, normally I would have a rest, a break of maybe 
say, seven or ten days. And during that time, I just think about what I had written and try to identify the problems in the draft, the things that I could sharpen up, and the way to make it better, to improve the, the writing. And then I would go back in again. But at this, I also would have a pause and go on to another novel as well. So oh. with Fever City, I would, I would go through a complete draft maybe twice. Then I would put it aside. I'd work on another piece. I'd go through a complete draft of that, I'd put it aside, and then I would go back to Fever City or go back to another novel. So during this period, I was writing three novels at the same time. And I also wrote about six screenplays during this time as well. Right. And but why did, City was the focus. Why did you want to write the two other novels? Why didn't you want to concentrate just on, say, Fever City? I think it's because the way I write is I need a, a degree of away a, a time, of mm. downtime from, from a book. And I, I think that if I don't have that, I might get caught up in a, a false conception of what I'm writing I, I need to have a distance from what I've written to really feel that I can examine it with a critical eye mm. and not get swept away. Oftentimes when you finish a draft, the first thing you feel is elation, relief, and enthusiasm. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I think that enthusiasm can be false enthusiasm. Uh, and personally, I need distance to look at it with a critical eye and to say, it's not as good as I thought it was, or, hey, that's not bad. I, I'm nearly getting there. Yes. So with the with the plot of Fever City, uh, did you know, I guess, after you woke up with a lightning bolt at 4am at that time, did you know after that where your entire story was going or where most of your story was going or did you let it unfold and discover what happened? I let it unfold. Really? The lightning bolt moments were moments that got me into the story because what they did is they established a locale, which is very important for me to have a sense of location that is very vivid in my mind. Mm. And then secondly, it gave me a voice, a tone. And because there are three narratives in 1960, 1963 and 2014, there are three different voices and what happened in the book is the three strands began to coalesce, to intertwine, until they dovetail at the end into uh, an explanation that solves the three mysteries and brings the three narratives together. Mm. So I had to work my way through that myself. And I'm, I, it was difficult, but I'm very glad that I didn't plot, because I think if I plotted, I may have found an easy way out or an artificial way out. This was a much more a, organic process. And in a way, I feel that I have undergone the same kind of quest that the reader will undergo in yeah. trying to solve these three mysteries. Yes. Now, you mentioned that during your time in, working in the consulate, um, as a consular manager, you learnt a lot of stuff like police procedures and, and stuff that, you know, helped you in, in your research, really, for yes. this book. Apart from that, I imagine that you would have had to have done a lot of other research. And the nature of this book is such that I imagine you would have done a lot of other research. What kind of research did you have to do? And was it done... As needed, or did you did you, did you do pre research? Well, uh, I did a lot of research around the the assassination of JFK, mm. but because I started twenty years ago, mm. I had already a very good grasp of the of the major theories and the major conspiracy theories and the history around it, and I also knew the main characters, the historical players in the story. Mm. Um, but it was a good balance, I think, Valerie, because the kidnapping story was very loosely inspired by several um, real-life histories of kidnapping. But it's essentially fiction. And the JFK element, it, most of it is fiction, but it's, it's encapsulated by historical fact. And I liked the balance between the two. And my goal was to try to bestow as much of this historical feel on the kidnapping as already existed around the JFK killing. Mm. Wow. And so you mentioned that you 
have these two other novels. Is that what's next for you? Are you working on one of those or are you working on your fourth novel? <laughs> well, I, I have um, several more. I'm working on a, a fourth and a fifth novel as well. Wow. But uh, what I'm working on right now is a novel that's one of the other two. It's nearly complete and it's set in Mexico at the turn of the, the 20th and 21st century in 2000. Yep. And it looks at two women who are, one of them is a labor organizer, trying to organize the sweatshops that have sprung up along the border with the United States. And the other woman is a, a, a photographer and a journalist. And it looks at their fight to try to um, expose political corruption, economic corruption, and the growing influence of the narcos mm. in the border towns along uh, the U.S.-Mexican border. Wow. And it's that, that evolved out of a, a trip I made to Mexico in 1998, which um, had a huge impact upon me. Mm-hmm. And then the other book I'm working on right now is the sequel to Fever City. And there will be a very strong Australian component because one of the, the four main protagonists in Fever City is an Australian. Mm-hmm. And we'll see um, a lot of Australia in the 1960s. Wow. And a, lo- a lot of... Um, the United States in the 1960s and Italy in the United uh, 1960s as well. Mm. Now, you're actually doing something fairly innovative and different for authors. You're actually embarking on a blog tour to promote this book. Can you yes. tell us why this approach? Right. It was Faber and Faber that suggested it to me. And it's because um, crime fiction has grown incredibly over the last 10 years. And some of the best bloggers are people who are devoted solely to crime fiction. And so Faber said, why not tap into the enthusiasm of all these people? And given the fact that the book is unusual, it's, it's, it's a crime thriller, but it's not like your typical, uh, these days a, a lot of uh, crime books are domestic noir with an unreliable um, narrator, for example, Gone Girl or The Girl on a, on a Train, books like that. So they, they spoke to a lot of the bloggers and there was a huge amount of interest in the book. And basically because it addresses one of the greatest unsolved crimes since Jack the Ripper, which is the assassination of JFK. I say unsolved because... Um, about 70% of American citizens don't believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the person who killed Kennedy. So there's a huge question mark. And also there's a rise in, in conspiracy theories around the world right now, and I think it's because of social media. Yeah. But anyway, they put together a blog, and once the bloggers, they talked to each other a lot, once some of them heard that uh, they were doing Fever City, the other ones started contacting uh Faber and Faber. Mm-hmm. And now we have a massive blog tour that's uh, a month long. That's great. And it's really great to tap into all of this enthusiasm. There's a lot of uh, Q&As involved. And what has really stunned me is all of them are incredibly different. And I really appreciate it because it makes me think about the book yeah. in ways that I wouldn't have really uh, thought about it. And they're addressing questions from their own interests and their own background. So it's been fantastic. I'm really enthusiastic about it and so happy that Faber thought of it. Now, you back to Faber City, you've got um, uh, your characters. Your protagonist is Nick Alston, a Los Angeles private investigator. And you've also got a guy called Hastings, who's a mob hitman, uh, and obviously numerous other characters as well. But with, say, your key characters, they are living such an unreal life, you know, a life, extraordinary life. How did you get to know your characters? How did you evolve them? How did you determine what kind of people they were going to be? Right. I know a lot of re- uh, writers create character sheets yeah. and they, they work out their childhood, what school they go to, uh, what are their favorite foods, uh, their, their partners in their life, things like that. I didn't do any of that. I just thought of a tone, a tone for, for each voice, because there are three narrative streams and each narrative has a different voice. There's first person and third person. There's present tense and simple past. I just 
went for the voices. And once I found the voice of one of these characters, I was away. So again, it was kind of an intuitive decision that I made. But what I wanted to do is I, I, I grew up loving the, the golden age of noir, mm. of the private investigator. And I loved the conventions. So I, what I did is I embraced all of the conventions of noir and then one by one I smashed them. So it, gave, it was a lot of fun to say what would happen here and to start going along that, that way and then smashing that convention and doing something completely unexpected. And you do have a, a private eye who used to be an LAPD detective uh, who did something that was unforgivable. He was kicked out of the force. He became a private detective. You have a, a mob hitman. Now, how do you create empathy for a man who, during the course of FIFA City, kills 34 people? <laughs> what, what I did is I wanted to look at the background. Both the, um, the private detective and the hitman are veterans of World War II. They, they both fought in Iwo Jima, which was one of the most brutal battles in the Pacific. One of the themes is to look at how society transforms its young men by sending them to war and turning them into killers. Mm. And then they return back to peacetime uh, society. How do they integrate? Mm. Well, Nick, the private eye, he integrates in an uncomfortable way, but he does socially integrate. He's a, as a cop and as a private detective, he's a functioning member of society, whereas Hastings cannot integrate and he goes over to the dark side to the the mob force he retains his identity as a killer he's been transformed and his quest is to try to redeem himself and he does that by helping nick find the the kidnapped child mm. and then the third narrator is the son of nick and he's an everyday kind of person he's basically a hack journalist. He's writing a piece about the assassination of Jack and Bobby Kennedy, and he's interviewing all of these nutcases in Dallas, these conspiracy theorists, with a cynical eye. He just wants to write the story, sell it, and move on. Mm. But he doesn't expect to find a suggestion that his father may have been involved in the assassination of JFK. So suddenly it's become personal, and he's trying to interpret the actions of his father during a moment of acute crisis. And he doesn't want to judge him, but he's going to have to judge him in the end. Mm. So that's the domestic noir element. And then there's a fourth protagonist, a woman, Betty Bannister. I really wanted to have a woman in this story, a powerful woman, because it's driven by three men. Mm. And all of these men are dealing with betrayals in the past. And so is Betty. But the difference between Betty and the three men is she has the strength to forget the past and to move on and try and create a future, whereas the three men, for most of their lives, have been trapped by the past, by the injuries of the past. Mm. And Valerie, I think this comes to one of the central points of Fever City, which is all of us have our own private Dallas moment. <sighs> Dallas in 1963 was the destruction for all of the Americans of all of their hopes, their optimism, their belief that change could happen. Mm. And all of us have a moment in our lives where something happens to us or someone does something to us that changes our life, mm. that changes our expectations of where we're going. And it's how we react to that change. Do we become bitter? Do we get full of regret or nostalgia? Or do we try to adapt to that change to move on to rebuild our lives? And that for me is, is at the heart of Fever City how do we, how do the characters and how do we as readers adapt to the Dallas moment when our lives are changed unexpectedly? Very, very exciting. Absolutely can't wait to read the book. And uh, uh, finally, if there are people listening to this and they are at that edge as you were and where you were actually wondering, should I give this a full-time go or, or not? What's your advice to them? I think you have to follow your heart. To, to get by, you need talent, of course. You have to be a good writer. You need tenacity because you're going to find uh, a lot of rejection, especially when you're looking for a literary agent. Mm. It's all about rejection and dealing with the process of rejection. So you have to have the courage and the determination not to give up. But most of all, you need luck. 
You just have to have that moment when the manuscript falls into the right hands, whether it's an agent or an editor. So I think if you have belief in yourself, go for it. Mm. You you just have to, if you think you can go through a, a period dealing with rejection, dealing with setbacks, if you have that tenacity, and if it means something to you, then I think do it. Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Tim. Thanks so much for having me, Valerie. It's been a pleasure. So there you go, Tim Baker. And wouldn't you just love that luxury, Al, to be able to commit to writing full time and just focus solely on your your piece of work? Amazing, right? What a great well, what a yes. great situation to be in. Well, yes, but as we've talked about before, I always work on the theory that the more time you have, the more time it takes. Well, um, yes. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I would like the – I think I would quite enjoy the luxury, especially after all these years of writing 80,000 things at the same time. <laughs> um, but I do wonder how I would cope. <laughs> what do you mean cope? Well, I just think like if if all I had to do was the one thing and and I had, you know, X, six months to do it. Yeah. Would I just do that thing where I would watch Netflix for 5 months and yeah, then do it I in would. a month anyway? Like <laughs> I just don't I just don't know. Just, let's well put it this way, I'd like to be find I'd like to find out. I'd like yes. to chat. Yeah. I'd like yeah, to okay. try finding out. So, we'll see what we can do. Awesome. All right. Let's move on to our working writers tip for this week. What have you got? Well, I interestingly, so last week I was having a moment, as I do, and mm-hmm. I was sitting there trying to come up with a blog post and everything that I sort of thought about seemed to be insanely dull. <laughs> so I did what I always do in these circumstances, which is I took myself off to social media and said, you know, has anyone got a question that they want answered because – you know, I need a blog post. And fortunately for me, my fabulous community always has lots of questions. Mm. Um, incl- like one of them was which horse will win the golden slipper this year. Oh, which, okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, I didn't really sort of get involved in that too much. Yeah. But I did get a lot of, a lot of questions. And I, I thought that um, given I have so many, I, could, I wrote a blog post where, in which I answered three of them and we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Um, yes. It's called Ask the Writer, Your Questions Answered. Um, and I did, I did answer three of them in that. But as I said to them, I'm going to need to do the rest of them over other blog posts and other medium. Yes. And here we are, medium. Here yes. we are. Um, so I thought you and I could answer this one together. And this one is from Jody Gibson, who oh. I would just like to point out um, ended up on a top 50 writers blog list herself awesome. in the last uh, in the last week or so. I think it was the Positive Writers Top 50. Um, she Go, writes Jody. blog JF Gibson. Very well done, Jody. So excited. Mm. Um, but anyway, Jody's question is. How to motivate oneself to edit and rewrite. Mm. I have no problem writing, as you see your word count increase each day, but editing and rewriting seems such a mammoth, thankless task to motivate myself to tackle. How do you do that? So we're going to start with you, Valerie. How do you motivate yourself to edit and rewrite when you need to do that? Yeah. Um, Food works really (laughs) well for me. Yeah, <laughs> or how I motivate myself for many things, not just editing and rewriting, uh, but you know, I, I break it down into something that's doable, and I will I motivate myself with food. Sometimes I've tried motivating myself with other things, like um, you know, I'll go get a massage, but then I I I know how to rot the system with that because I I go okay, I actually have to have the massage now at one o'clock because they won't fit me in at the end of the day or they'll be closed at the end of the day um, by the time I finish editing and rewriting. Whereas, you know, with food, you can just leave it in the fridge and you are not allowed to have it until until you finish the edit or rewrite. Or I will pick a you know, a food that I have to go and get. So I'm not allowed to go and get in the car till to, to get the banoffee pie or whatever unless I have finished my task. So for me food works sometimes um it's not always like junk food or anything like that I mean admittedly banoffee pie is not the most healthy thing in the world but sometimes it's just going to a cafe to have a salad or whatever but it might be my favorite cafe so food is somewhat of a motivator for me I've also tried to trick myself in the past and I've this is 
This is true. I, are you listen, I'm hoping that read that our listeners are actually hearing my astounded <laughs> silence here. I honestly, I, no, I mean, I saw honest. someone tweet you the other day suggesting that you add "will work for pie" yeah. to your author bio, and I think that that is actually. Correct. Well, you need to do what motivates you, right? And at the you moment, do. that's what motivated me because there was a period where I was editing. So this is this is true. I was doing editing and rewriting and I would tell myself, okay, if I edit and rewrite this 3,000 words, whatever my word count was that I thought was, um, you know, a nice, neat word count to edit and rewrite, I'll reward myself by doing 20 push-ups. <laughs> right, okay. And at the time, that was a motivating so I was attempting to – be fit or something. Come here, like you have to some crazy thing. <laughs> right. So you just need to do whatever it is that's actually going to make you do it, whether that's food or whether that's you know exercise or seeing a movie or binge watching on a television show or buying a scarf. Whatever's going to you know make you do it. I, I'm a big believer in rewards. How about okay. you? Okay. Uh, no, that's not not rewards. Works. You don't well, do rewards. No, sure that uh, you do no. rewards. I do deadlines. That's yeah. actually, oh, I, well, that's okay. what I do. That's how I motivate I myself. I think my, f- my way is more fun than you. Well, exactly, possibly, but I won't end up with a lard ass. <laughs> let's just put that out there, shall we? A, in, in old English, a wobbly bottom. Um, no, I, I. so what I do is I put myself in the position where I have someone waiting for it. Oh, yeah, okay. Any, yeah, yeah. Anyone will do. So if it's anyone a, so. Anyone will do. Um, so at the moment, for example, um, I am working on that new manuscript that we've been talking mm, about, mm. which is ne- I've nearly finished writing, but I need to edit and rework it relatively quickly. So I have spoken to a 10-year-old girl that I know who um, is a very avid reader and I have said to her, will you read this for me as a beta reader mm. and I will get it to you by the X you know, date of February. Yes. Now, I don't want to disappoint a 10-year-old who is very avidly – she's so excited to Aww. be, you know, the first reader of this thing yes. that I've done that there's no way I'll disappoint her. So I've got to finish it and then I've got to edit rework it by the date that I've given her. In other circumstances, I, I just make sure that someone's waiting for it so I've got to get it done. So whether I will book it if it's – if I've decided that it's at the point where it's time to get it professionally you know, edited or Mm. have the structural edit done, I will, because, you know, I do a couple of drafts before I do that. So I will book it in on a date and I know that I have to get the, you know, the current uh, draft edit done by that date. I, I deadlines, I just, it's kind of, I guess because of the magazine background and all of those sorts of things, I work to deadlines. I don't work for food. Oh, no, I will just clarify that and say Mm -hmm. that I I only get the food if I achieve it by a certain deadline. Hmm. So I give myself a deadline and the number of words or whatever, and I have to meet it meet it by that deadline, or I don't get the food. Hmm. So it's it's well, food. Yeah. So you break yours down into chunks. I just basically look at getting the like I'm working around the fifty five thousand word mark. I just aim to get the get the whole thing done by a certain date. Oh, that's at, a whole degustation menu for me. I mean, that's well, just... really, you... <laughs> that's not snacking <laughs> endlessly with that sort of thing. But yeah, I just, I just, I think it's the, the motivation for me is that not the knowledge that someone else is waiting for it yes. that I don't want to let down. So it's right. that, yeah. That's a so good I, I think, I guess what we're, what we're trying to say, Jodie, um, mm. is that you've just got to find that thing that will work for you. And it's, again, mm. it's a habit. You've obviously got yourself into a writing habit, which is sensational. Mm. And the editing habit is exactly the same thing. It's the same time. You, you do it at the same time every day. You set yourself a page count. If that's, you know, if you're working with fiction, mm. um, you know, I'm going to do 20 pages by whatever time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and you just, it's a, it's the habit. It's again, you just, you show up every day like Pavlov's dog ready to go when yeah. the bell rings, you know? Yep. And reward yourself, mm. whatever it is that that's going to motivate you. Mm, that's Good right. question, great question. Yeah. All right, well, what what are you up to this week, Al? <sighs> what am I doing? Uh, good question. Uh, what am I doing? Well, lots of things, lots of writing, many, many writing things. Oh, you know what I am doing? I'm mm. quite excited about on Friday night. What? I'm going to the Cleo farewell party. I'm going oh, to say goodbye yes. to Cleo. I'm yeah, going to right. check. I'm going to see all my. 
um, all my friends from the, you know, Clio days working together. Um, yeah, I'm really, really, I mean, I'm desperately sad that the magazine's closed. Yes. But I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, I'm still deciding. I'm in an hour-ing whether I'll make the trek in, but... Um, but yeah, it's that a should trek be fun. For you these days, isn't it? It is a bit of a trick. Uh, but anyway, where do we find you on social media? You will find me. Um, well, you'll find me on my website, alisontate.com. And if you have a question that you would like me to answer, find that uh, post, ask yes. the writer, and pop it in the comments, and I will do my best. Or Valerie and I will do our best to get to it at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so you'll find me at alisontate.com. You will also find me on Twitter at, at altate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you'll find me on Facebook at Writer. And you, Valerie? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter and all manner of social media platforms. So we look forward to connecting with you uh, and also chatting to you next week. So until then, thanks so much for listening. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentercomau slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentercomau slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.